Okay, Second Peter. Oh, that's first. Let's move. Second Peter chapter two. And we are walking into verses twelve. Be ready through sixteen. All right, big chunk here. I don't know if we'll cover it all tonight. I, I, I'm hoping to, but there's something I want to do with it specifically, and it may take us a little bit longer than just tonight, but that's okay. Um, this is about the ugliest section of the description of the false teacher. It is really a very horrid little passage to have to go through. Um, but the Lord puts it down as he sees it. Remember, those who are false teachers are trying to deceive the bride of Christ. And he takes that very seriously. And he does not hold back and give them, you know, any kind of glowing terms as if, uh, you know, a, a false teacher or two in your midst is not a problem. <laughs> he goes and describes them in some of the ugliest terms that we will ever see. And um, that is done on purpose. The whole point is for us to come away saying, yuck, we don't want that here. And if that's where we need to be shaken a little bit so that we're more uh, aware and more sober-minded and more alert, I think that this is worth our time. Uh, again, it's not the prettiest section in Scripture. I think it's a good section to give to mature believers uh, as we walk through these things. Immature believers would have trouble with it. Uh, unbelievers have no idea what to do with it. Uh, but this description passage is absolutely incredible. So let's start into Second Peter chapter 2, 12, and I'm going to read through verse 16. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet." Do you know that's one sentence in the Greek? That's just, we have a lot of periods in there, uh, probably because we have to stop and swallow every now and then. But Peter's pen never stopped going. This was one sentence, and it's like, whoa, Peter, heavy stuff. So let's have a word of prayer and dive into it. Heavenly Father, help us again tonight as we studied from your word. What a, what a privilege it is to have it, to learn from it, and to be warned by it. And we need that in our day and age, too. So help us, uh, as we go through this passage, to understand it best, uh, that we might grow thereby and be prepared for the days of, that we're in at this time. And thank you, Lord, for your great love for us, for protecting us, for being with us, for guiding us, for causing us to grow. You've been very, very good to us, and we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now what I want to do, obviously toward the end of this, uh, there's a comparison made. Jude did it too, and when we went through Jude in the morning, we touched on some of these individuals, Korah and Balaam and others, and we touched on them. I want to go much deeper with Balaam here tonight, all right? because Balaam is the picture that the rest of these verses, 12, 13, 14, uh, are explaining. They're, they're saying, this, this is what a false teacher looks like. And when he gets to the end, he says, well, it's just like Balaam. And so we're going to talk about Balaam first and then back up to the text again and walk through it that way. So we're going on a little bit of a history hunt here. 
Back to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. You're familiar with Balaam, the flannel graph. We've been very good about the flannel graph with, uh, you know, a donkey talking to the prophet Balaam. And yet there's a lot to the story that the Sunday school lessons don't always go into the details of this. There's parts of it you don't want to go into the details of it. Uh, And so we're going to look at Balaam and what he did and what the scripture says about him. And there are several pieces to this. And so we'll start with chapter 22. And yes, I'm going to start reading, and it's going to be a little bit lengthy because there's several chapters in this reading. But stick with it, all right? There's value to all of this. In chapter 22, now this is when Israel has come out of Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. This is a new generation. Their fathers have all perished by this time or close to it. And the new sec- or the second generation is now walking around to enter into the promised land. Now, if you follow it on a map, they're down below the Dead Sea and they're coming down around uh, on the eastern side of the Dead Sea to cross at the top of the Dead Sea where the city of Jericho is. All right, now, in order to get there, There's two chunks of territory to go through. One is Esau's territory, called Edom. And the other is Moab. And Moab is a descendant of Lot. One of his daughters had those children. And that was uh, Lot's family. So they're distant relatives, if you will. And God actually told Israel, don't pass through Esau's land. Just go around it. And when you get up toward uh, Moab, let's just go around it and let's go in above Moab. There is a territory up there in, in between Moab and the kings of, of the eastern side of the Jordan River. And he says, you're going to go in there. So just bypass these two. Well, the king of Moab couldn't stand it. He sees them coming around the corner and he says, oh no, look at them. We're in trouble. There's so many of them. And already... Uh, They've encountered some problems, but, I mean, when you have a pillar of fire leading you by night and a pillar of cloud by day, and there's manna dumping into your neighborhood every single day, I mean, that's a pretty good sign God's with you. And here he sees them coming, and he starts to panic, thinking, oh, they're going to come into my land. I've got to stop them. And his basic idea is, if I can curse them, they will not be able to to uh, get the blessings of the Lord. However, he thought that would work. All right? In his mind, he thought that was a great idea. And so this is where the story starts. And the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, and they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the eaters, elders, not the eaters, the elders of Midian. Now, the Midianites were, were kind of a nomadic group that came and went, but they spent a lot of time with Moab. Uh, he says to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the fields. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of Moab at this time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Baor, at Pethor, which is near the river, that's the Euphrates River, we believe, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came up out of Egypt. Uh, Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me, perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Balaam had quite a reputation. We don't know what he did. We don't know how he got the word out of what he could do. That was before Internet and Facebook, you know. Maybe he had a little card in the grocery store, you know, when you come out the door on the bulletin board. But that somehow they figured, Balaam, you're the man. And what you do in blessing and cursing people, that always seems to stick. So come, I need you to come and curse them. 
so I could defeat them. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. He said to them, Spend the night here. I will bring back to you as the Lord may speak to me. And the leaders of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Now this is always intriguing. We scratch our head. We said, Why was God talking to this man in the first place? And was he a real prophet or was he not? And it's always still a confusion. But nevertheless, the story is as it is, right? And God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, O Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, have sent word to me, Behold, there's a people who comes out of Egypt, covers the surface of the land, so I'm to come and curse them. Perhaps I may be able to drive, uh, Balak could fight against them and drive them out. God says to Balaam in verse 12, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The leaders of Moab arose and went back to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak sent leaders more numerous and more distinguished than the former. They came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I beg you, hinder you from coming to me. For I will indeed honor you richly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then and curse this people for me. The right answer at this point is what? No. But Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me a house full of silver and gold, I cannot do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. Now please, you also stay here tonight, and I'll find out what else the Lord would speak to me. You know what he wants. He wants this. He wants that. And he says, let me see. So God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, you shall do. That's an interesting statement. So Balaam arose in the morning. He already knew he was not supposed to go. God said, all right, go on. You can almost hear it in the voice, can't you? Go on. That's what you want to... But he arose and saddled his donkey. They went with the leaders of Moab. God was angry because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with the drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way, went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn it back into the way. And the angel of the Lord stood at the narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She pressed herself to the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall so that he struck her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in the narrow place, and there was no way to turn to the right or to the left. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, and she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a mockery of me. What's going on right now? He's thinking that was a mockery? He's talking to a donkey. You've made a mockery to me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey in which you have ridden all your life to this day? Look at the reason of the donkey. It's really cool. Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? He says, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed all the way to the ground. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. But the donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I do not, did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. 
But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he cried out. He went out to meet him of the city of Moab, which was on the Arnon border, at the extreme edge of the border. And Balaam said to Bal- or Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Uh, am I able to speak anything at all? The words which God puts in my mouth, I shall speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Hazoth. And Balak offered or sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. And it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to a high place of Baal, and he saw from there a portion of the people. Now, if you go all the way through chapter 23, you'll find this incredible episode where Balaam turns to Balak and says, Now, okay, I'm going to do my my cursing for you now, but first make altars, seven of them, set them all up and sacrifice on them bulls and rams and each thing, and you're going to do that, and I'm going to have God tell me what to say, and I'm going to curse these people. And as you probably already know, every time he opened up his mouth, it wasn't a curse. It was a blessing. And in chapter 23, it starts right up in verse number 7, and I'm not going to read all of that. But every time he starts talking about uh, what God gave him, it was always a blessing. And Balak got angrier and angrier and angrier. And each time he got upset about this, Balaam would say, oh, it's probably the wrong mountain. Let's go to another spot and get a different view and try it all over again. And they did it three times. And it was still blessing after blessing after blessing. And that did not go over well for Balak. Finally, he told him in verse 25 of chapter 23, he says, well, don't even curse them at all. <laughs> because every time you open your mouth, you're going to bless them. He says, don't say anything. And Balaam says to Balak, did I not tell you whatever the Lord speaks that I must do? And Balak says to Bla- Balaam, oh, let's try another place. <laughs> and they keep going into chapter 24. And there are more blessings going on. And finally, in verse 10 of chapter 24, Balak's anger burned against Balaam. And he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies. Behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place. Now I said I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. So everybody's blaming the Lord here, right? Balaam's blaming the Lord, and and Balak's blaming the Lord. And and, uh, Balaam responds, Did I not tell your messengers? whom he sent to me, saying, Though Balak was to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could do nothing contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. What the Lord speaks, that will I... What the Lord speaks, that will I speak. Now behold, I am going to my people. Come, and I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the days to come. And he gives them a free one. He just goes into another discourse about what to expect. And it's not good news for Balak and the Moabites. And he goes through this and he departs. Now, what we don't know from chapter 23 and 24 is one other piece of advice. And he advises one more time before he walks out the door. And for that, he takes a pocket full of money. He says, I cannot curse them. Notice how he kept emphasizing, it's what the Lord gives me to say. I can't do anything about that. But he then advises them, there is something that they can do to bring a curse upon their own head. And that is, disobey the Lord. If the Lord sees that they have sinned against him, he will punish them. And the track record is already out there. So many things they've done wrong, especially you start with the golden calf and all those other episodes that they have committed sins and the Lord had punished them with a variety of ways, but many times it included death. 
And he says, there's one way for sure. I know that they will be loathsome in the eyes of God. And that is, incite them to idolatry. And you're like, okay, how do I do that? Oh, it's easy. Just use prostitutes. And that's what his advice was. They're in that, they're breaking the law of idolatry. They're breaking, committing the adultery sin. They're just racking up a whole bunch of them. And he says, that will curse them. You won't even have to fight because God will take care of them. That was his advice. Chapter 25. Israel remained at Shittim. The people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they, the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their God, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And before this chapter is done, there's a lot of people dead. 24,000 people. Because the Lord got angry. They went right into immorality. It not only included the Moabite women, but it included the, the Midianite women, too. You can see that in verse number 6. The Midianite women were part of this story, too. You say, okay, that's terrible. Oh, yes, it is terrible. What came of all this? Well, later on, after this was cleaned up and things of that nature happened, we have another record of Mr. Uh, Balaam, and we go all the way to Numbers 31. Numbers 31. And when the chapter starts here, the, this is several, several months later, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take full, full vengeance on the, uh, for the sons of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards you will be gathered to your people. Moses spoke to the people and said, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. And he separates the tribes and who's going to do what and such like that. Verse 7, So they made war against Midian, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian along with the rest of their slaves, Evi and Rechem and Zur and Hur and Reba and five kings of Midian. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. They killed him. When you jump down to verse number 16, this is a statement Moses makes because the people killed the men, but they brought the women back, the Midianite women. Oh, that's not a good thing. And so Moses brings that up, and he says in verse 15, Moses says to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor, so that the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the liberal ones and kill every woman who has known man intimately. So there the Lord follows up with a simple statement. It was Balaam. Balaam counseled this that led to the destruction of 24,000 Israelites. That's what Moab wanted, but they couldn't get there. And Balaam's counsel was that, offer money. When you look at this little section, you see his motive. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? His motive, and the New Testament says it several times, it was the love of money. He did it for wages. He wanted the money. His character in deception, bringing in the picture of sin by trickery, by uh, covetousness, his behavior was what you might call irrational when you go through his whole story. You say, what is he doing that for? This guy's talking back to a donkey. He's changing the scene every time. He knew all along the Lord didn't want him there. And yet he continued in on it. It was an irrational thing to do. His end was ruin. Now, take that picture and go back to Second Peter. You're going to see the same thing. You're going to see the same picture. Scripture says, uh, what comes out of the heart of a man is what is the man. <laughs> That's 
it's obvious what comes out of the heart. That's the man. And we're told in, in um, Matthew, Jesus tells him, the, the ones listening at the Sermon on the Mount there in chapter 7, he says, beware of the false prophet. They come to you in sheep's clothing. They're deceptive. You will know them by their fruit. And he goes through a passage there. And then Luke also picks up on this, and Jesus says in Luke 6.40, Everyone, after they have been fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's an interesting phrase. And he says again in Luke 6, verse 43 through 45, that his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now, I said that before you in this way, that the false teachers that Peter is describing here, their fruit is evident. Right? Their heart is exposed. And yet they have been fully trained to be this way, and their desire is to fully train others to be this way too. That's the big danger of what we are looking at in this passage. Uh, these false teachers will be in the church. That's what Peter starts in Second Peter chapter 2, where he says, uh, there were false teachers years ago. Yes, they did that. There will also be false teachers among you. Will be. It's not a happy phrase, but it's reality. God said it. That will happen. False teachers will come. And they come to destroy. They come to deceive. And yet, as we've been studying this Peter passage from verse 3 here all the way down to verse 9, they will be judged. They don't get, go outside of God's radar, do they? He will see them, and he will judge them. And so, now they start to explain, as Peter does, what that looks like. And he uses the picture of Balaam as the illustration. He says, this is what I mean. They're here to deceive you, but their end is ruin. God will judge them. So Balaam's a perfect example of this. Uh, chapter 10, we've already, or verse 10 and 11, we've already dealt with that one too, is that they like to intimidate people, they're daring, they revile angels, it's just, they despise authority, they look very impressive and intimidating, and yet when we get down to verse number 12, they're just like animals. Unreasoning animals. I think that's kind of interesting because who was Balaam arguing with? An animal. And who was the unreasonable one in the whole story? It wasn't the donkey, was it? It wasn't the donkey. But they're like these animals. They're destroyed and they're being destroyed. They're very deceptive. They're false. And this is what he's walking through. So let's look at four pieces tonight. And i see if we can get through all four. Uh, the motive of the false teacher, the character of the false teacher, the behavior of the false teacher, and the end of the false teacher. All right? So the motive, the character, the behavior, and the end. Now to do this in this order because it keeps in, in line with our description of, of uh, Balaam, we actually have to go backwards. All right, we're going to start in verse 15 and 16 and work our way back to verse 12. All right, so it might be a little challenging to go backwards a bit here. But uh, when you start with verse 15 and 16, it speaks of forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. For he received a rebuke from his own donkey. And we've talked about that too. Uh, but notice as you begin with his motive. They want the wages. End of verse 15. Balaam loved the wages. And that's the kind of people the false teacher are. They saw the reward. They wanted it. They wanted it. So they followed it says also in here, uh, having followed the way of Balaam. That means they were learning from him, in that sense. That way's already been run down. It's, been, it's already been paved. They got on it. And they learned that way. They followed it. 
We use that word a lot, and usually we say it in a positive way, don't we? Follow the Lord, or follow in His steps, or follow in the path of righteousness. We use that word follow a lot. Here it's followed, they followed the way of Balaam. It says they wandered away, they went astray. Notice that too in verse number 15. They have gone astray. And this is what kind of frightens me the most of all this picture. Because if they've gone astray, that meant they must have been somewhere in the right camp in the first place for them to have strayed from it. And that's what worries me <laughs> as, as a pastor, is that to have a false teacher among us, they may not look that way at first. They may be just somebody that we say, oh yeah, this is, this is one of our own. We eat with them, we, we fellowship with them, we worship with them. These ones at some time must have been that way, but now they have gone astray. They've walked away from something. That's kind of scary to me. It also says they forsook the right way. The beginning of verse 15. They forsook it. They left it behind. And of all these four descriptions right there, this one is rather pronounced because it's in the present tense. All the rest are kind of like just past tense. This is what happened. This is what happened. This is what happened. But this one's in the present tense. They continually forsake the right way. They keep on that, forsaking the right way. Whatever is right, they're going the opposite way every single time. It's a continuous process for them of forsaking the right way. Why? Because they saw the reward. They learned the way of Balaam. They went astray. And this is their pattern now. They're forsaking, forsaking, forsaking. And they keep on that path, leaving behind, leaving behind. Somewhere, somebody seduced them down that path. Somewhere, they wandered from it. They, they followed after someone. They tread in somebody else's steps. They learned it. They found the road to Balaam and they liked it. And they walked his way. And Balaam was a man who deeply loved the reward. A reward for doing wrong. He was a prophet for hire. And they learned that way. The similarities are incredible here. Covetousness is what Balaam was about. That's what these people are about. Uh, they're professed teachers of religion. Balaam was considered a honorable prophet. Everybody knew about him, apparently, because that's why they called him. He carried about with him the, the appearance of being a servant of God. And he wasn't, and that was he. Ultimately, they entice people to sin. That's, their, that's part of their technique, is to entice people to sin, exactly as Balaam does here. So, that's their motive. It's pretty easy to see, uh, Mark. But let's talk about their character. Let's move back to verse 14 for a minute. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Boy, that's a mouthful. It's kind of like taking a closer look at the person you're eating with right now. <laughs> Jude says, well, they're, like, they're eating with you in your love feast. And Peter says, take a good look at who you're in there. Remember how the Pharisees used to say this of Jesus? Does, does he even know who just touched him? Does he know who that woman is? Does he know who that person is? And they were always identifying Jesus in the wrong sight because of the company he kept. He eats with tax collectors. He eats with adulterers. And on and on. They, they always tried to label Jesus because of the company he keeps. Now, the book of Proverbs warns us, though, about that, doesn't it? The people you stay, your company, easily could affect you. We know that. Here's a picture of these folks who sit and eat with the folks that Peter's warning in the church. He says, they're chronic in their sin. I think that's the best word for it. Everything in this description is characteristics that are not just one-time events. They go on and on and on and on. The verbal tense is incredible here. They are having eyes 
full of adulteries. Full. Think of that word. They're, they see nothing else. Nothing else. But that's where their eyes are set. They have always these eyes full of adulteries and eyes who are unceasing. They do not stop. They cannot be restrained from sin. That's all they want to do. It's a very vivid picture. Very vivid picture. The idea of, of to, to see a woman with lascivious thoughts and, and not able to stop just is a good definition of total depravity, by the way. They can't stop sinning. That's the false teacher. That's the way they're described. I, I've said this before, but I'll bring it up again. More times than not, when a false teacher is described in the epistles, there are two things to look at. Their doctrine, yes, but they can be very deceptive with doctrine and with words. And the scriptures almost always say, check their behavior. The behavior gives it away. And here is the description of this. And you can find it not only in Peter and Jude, but Timothy and all the other places that describe a false teacher. It's those two things, doctrine and behavior. And it's the behavior that's more obvious. And they're, here they are. They're, they're constantly, constantly, constantly full of adultery with their eyes. And then they go about enticing unsav- unstable souls. Like with bait. And here, you know, Peter the fisherman. What a great word for him to use. He's using the word for bait. He says, this is what they do. They, they put out a bait. They put out a bait. They're enticing people to sin. They put out the bait. And you know what they're offering them? Freedom. They said, oh, this is good stuff for you. you, you you've got to follow us because this is where the freedom is. Jude, as we know... They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They turn God's grace into sin. And they say, it's okay with God. It is not okay with God. (laughs) But that's what they say. You're free under grace. You can do anything you want. There are groups teaching that today. It's frightful. They're getting into our colleges, folks. They're teaching our future pastors this. And it's frightening to me. It scares me. Because I don't know what the future will be for the church if the leaders are being trained to be like this. I call it enticing to sin. It's a bait. They're setting out there, and they're calling it freedom, and it is not freedom, because either you're serving the Lord or you're not. And there's no, there's no freedom with any of us, by the way. We're either a slave to Christ or we're a slave to sin. That's what Romans tells us. And I don't want to be caught in that trap, obviously. You don't want to be caught in that trap either. But there is no freedom to sin. Sin enslaves. Sin kills. Don't we know that? We believe that. Wages of sin is death. And they're saying to people, no, it's freedom. It is not freedom. And it never will be freedom. They say it's fulfillment. It's fulfillment for you. You know, you you want joy in your life. You want success in your life. You want this is the path for it. This is where you get it. You want to be honored by people. You want all these other things. Just like Balaam was honored. You can have everything. Just follow these steps. The search for fulfillment constantly. It's so self centered. It's so contrary to the New Testament because what we do as believers is grow in our service to other people. What they're saying is, oh no, it's all about you. Let them serve you. You just need fulfilled. You need, you need to just bring it into yourself. So they have turned it completely around. The, the Christian call is to serve. And they say, no, it's to be served. It's a self-fulfillment thing. And that's part of their trap. They're enticing unstable people. When we're not mature, we're going to fall for it. Because it sounds good. And they can polish those words pretty. And it's so deceptive. And that's why Peter goes to his main point of this whole book is, Grow! Grow! Chapter 3. I love those words in verse 17. 
You therefore, beloved, know this beforehand. Be on your guard, so you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men, and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's our guard. That's our protection. And if we're not growing, we are unstable. We are unstable. And we are set up for their bait. We will fall for it because our minds are not trained in righteousness. It's that scary if we don't do it. We're bound to fall for this stuff because they go after man's own glory. And every single one of us have that tendency to say, I want some glory. (laughs) Give me some glory. Make me look good. It's a thing within us that I don't think we like, but it's there. Just let somebody pamper that a while. And you'll fall for it. It's, it's, It's ugly. I know it is. But that's what they do. They entice. And it says, keeping in the same passage, they entice unstable souls having a heart trained in greed, in covetousness, trained. Actually, it's a perfect tense. Completely trained. Perfectly disciplined. These are Olympians, all right, in this practice. They have everything, and they tried hard to gain this place where they are ready to act this way. A heart trained The word trained is the same word we get gymnasium from. That means they went there and they worked out. (laughs) They practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. Their heart, their reason, their will, their emotions, they are specialists in greed. That's the picture. They're experts in it. They've worked out in covetousness and they practiced it and sharpened it and they are greedy to the Top degree. They're professional, greedy people. Hearts trained. That's a powerful phrase, Peter. That's a very powerful picture. And yet, they're accursed children. They're literally children of doom, is the passage. Children of doom. We're going to get to that piece in a little bit in a minute. Let's talk about their behavior. By now you're saying, let's not talk about their behavior. All right? We've got to touch on this too. Back up in chapter 12 and 13. Like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of these creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages for doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Another big chunk of information here. But it starts with the fact that they are not people of understanding. They're not people of understanding. They're irrational, like animals. They, they follow the beat of their own natural appetite. And their own passion. Having been born for capture. Like an animal. Having been born for slaughter. Like an animal. J. Vernon McGee made this comment in his commentary. I thought was really pronounced. We hear a great deal today about man descending from an animal. But both the Old Testament and New Testament make it very clear that man is capable of living lower than the animal's. I go, wow. They blaspheme. They revile. They revile things they don't even know. Understand, it's, it's remarkable how their words, their malicious opinions, or some people call it character assassination, but they just blaspheme things they don't know, they don't understand. A.T. Robertson, in his word picture, says, it's a picture of loud ignoramuses posing as professional experts. <laughs> you ever meet them? <laughs> like, well, they talk loud, but they don't know a thing they're talking about. There's so many other pictures like this. But they will be ruined, he adds. They will be ruined in the end. They ruin themselves. Notice how it says, 
suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They're ruining themselves in this process. You know, it's not that the Lord has to find a way to punish them. The whole system is set up that they're going to be punished for it. Even the whole concept of the soul that sinneth, it shall die. He didn't have to turn to Adam and say, now you're going to die, because the system was already set that way. When a man sins, he dies. And Adam fell into it. And he fell into it. And we've fallen into it. God's law. We have laws for, for uh, gravity. We have laws in different ways on this earth. There are spiritual laws here too. The spiritual law is a man sins, he dies. And so they have fallen into their own wrong. They are suffering the wages of doing wrong. They're already under wrath. It's a reward for their wrong. And what's terrible about this is they're taking the lead in it. They're taking the lead in it. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. That's, that's just an incredible picture as well. This, this passion, this pleasure. It's the word we get hedonism from. They revel in it. They, it. The word revel is to riot, by the way. Which I think we get pretty good pictures of that on the news anymore, don't we? What a riot looks like. And this is what they do all the time. The false teachers riot in this kind of behavior. Always rioting in it. Always counting it a pleasure. A luxury. Remarkable. Wouldn't you say? It's just remarkable. He says, they will ruin you. They, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains. They are blemishes. They're reviling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Peter says to these people, they're going to ruin you. You're fellowshipping with them. They're part of your party. They're there. They're stains. How many people like stains? Nobody? I didn't think so. That's not on our best list. We don't go to the store to find, well, what's stain today? We don't like those things. We don't want those things. These are stains. They're disgraces to society. Albert Barnes says they are a scandal and a disgrace to the Christian profession. That's what they are. They're rioting in their deceptions, in their deceits, in your love feasts, and they're feasting together with you. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he says, you know, one of you is hungry in this feasting, and another one of you is drunk in the feasting. What kind of church is that? That's what these people are. They're the drunkard ones. They're the ones feasting together with you. And their end is obvious. Our time is practically up, isn't it? But their end is obvious. It's in verse 12. It's in verse 13. It's in verse 16. These ones who have no understanding, irrational, animal-like people, will be ruined. They will be ruined. Verse 12 says, They will be destroyed. In the destruction of these creatures also will be destroyed. Verse 13 says that they will ruin themselves. They're suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They destroy themselves. And the wages in that, that's the same word you find in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. And then down to verse 16. This is the last picture. But he received, speaking of Balaam, he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Received the rebuke. The rebuke of his own transgression. In Balaam's case, it was a dumb donkey who spoke to him, one who does not have a voice but spoke. He didn't have a man's voice. God put that in there. But Balaam wasn't thinking too well, was he? Talking back. I've always wondered this. As Balaam got closer to where Balak's camp was, if he just whispered in his donkey's ears, don't say anything. Have you ever wondered? (laughs) If he says, just don't tell him what we just went through. Um, 
I don't know. But this was to stop the madness of a prophet. You know, the picture is so, so ugly. It's like when you read that, do you really want a false teacher among us? Not with a description like this. And yet, this is the consistent description, by the way. You find it here, you find it in Jude, you find it in Timothy, you find it over and over again. The same description is given for false teachers. Different words, but the same behavior, the same motives, the same character, the same results. The end is the same. And I wonder why the Lord has to keep sending these messages to His churches. Unless we become complacent. That's what we need, too. We're going to walk down that road, too, if we're not careful. They're going to come. And if we're not walking with the Lord, we're bound to walk with them. That bothers me. It should bother all of, all of us. Because we want to stand where the Lord wants us to be. We want to be growing in His Word. We want to be strong. We want this church to have a testimony. That's a beautiful testimony. This world needs it. And a lot of other places have already fallen. Let's not be among that number. Let's stand for the Lord. Let's learn and grow in the Lord and grow in His grace. And take this warning to heart and say, Lord, let it not be said of us that we have these in our, among us. That's, that's His passage. That's a big chunk, isn't it? Might keep you up tonight. You sit there all night long staring at the ceiling saying, ah! But... Uh, it's an important passage for us to go through. So we're going to get into better things. Um, not for a little while, but they're coming. All right. Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you write it all out in black and white. Because we need that. We need shaking. We need to have our, our ears up and our eyes open. We need to have our, our attention set. We need to be alert. Our day is an evil day. And these false teachers are already among our Christian churches in our land. They're already writing books. They're already doing seminars. They're already pastoring churches. They're already out there doing this evil deed of deceiving the bride of Christ and leading them astray. Oh Lord, please help us to be vigilant here. Help us to take these words to heart. Help us to, to stand firm and yet to stand in you, to grow in your grace and in your knowledge. Not to, to think that we can fend it off with our own wisdom, our own strength, but may we draw to you, glean and grow and be, be uh, close to our shepherd. Lord, these are important words, and I pray that even as our crowd on Sunday nights is smaller than our Sunday morning ones, but... We're here as usually the more mature ones in the group. And, and uh, if anybody has to be alert, it should be us. Help us, Lord, we pray, to grow and be uh, prepared for the days that are around us. And stay close to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.